You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. The following is a book panel that occurred at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University on January 26, 2017. The panel features Aurelian Cryutu of Indiana University, Bloomington, in a discussion of his latest book, Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. The panel also includes Joshua Chernus of Georgetown University and Carol Sultan of the University of Maryland. It is moderated by Peter Betke. All right, we're here today um, to discuss... Uh, Aurelian, how do you say your last name? Is it, uh, how do you pronounce it correctly? You want it, uh, edited version or the unedited? Someone at New Jersey could repeat it. Uh, <laughs> Kayutsu. Kayutsu. Okay. Did I say that right? Okay. Um, and uh, we're going to hear to celebrate his book uh, today, Faces of Moderation. Uh, Aurelian is, uh, has his PhD from Princeton. He's a professor in the Department of uh, Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington. And he's also a uh, professor in the American Studies Program. He's also affiliated with the Russian and East European Institute, the Institute of European Studies, the Ostrom Workshop, and the Lilly School of Philanthropic Studies. Prior to coming to Indiana, he taught at uh, Duke University and University of Northern Iowa. And uh, in 2010, he was a visiting professor at the University of Paris uh, II. And uh, in 2006, he was a visiting professor of the National School of Political uh, Studies and Public Administrations in Bucharest. Um, Aurelian will speak first uh, and uh, summarize his book, and then we are fortunate to have uh, commentary uh, by uh, Joshua uh, Chiris. Chernis. Say that again? Chernis. Chernis. Um, and he's a assistant professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University, and he's a political theorist working uh, in both political thought and contemporary political theory. And then we will hear from uh, Carl uh, Sultan who is a professor at the Department of Economics and Politics at University of Maryland. Um, say that again? Government and politics. Government and politics at the University of Maryland. Yeah, it's an interesting debate in the world, whether or not you're in a department of political science, your department of government, your department of... Um, so we will leave that for after to talk about that. Um, he's also a professor of law at the University of Maryland Law School. Um, he's uh, taught in the Department of Economics at the University of Warsaw and National School of Public Administration in Warsaw, and he spent a semester as a visiting scholar of School of Law at University of Toulouse. Um, and uh, so the way this will go is roughly, uh, Aurelian has 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. I'll turn it back over to Aurelian if he wants to respond or we get the Q&A. Okay? All right, please welcome uh, Aurelian. Thank you. It's a great honor and a pleasure to be with you, so thanks for taking time to attend this uh, event. And thank you to Pete and Claire and everyone else who was, uh, were instrumental in uh, putting together. And thanks to my fellow panelists, Josh, good friends as well. It's a little bit of an echo chamber, I would say, here. So I would like some controversy from you, so I count on you for disagreeing with us. I thought since I'm in a company of distinguished economists here, I should start with a poet because I think uh, it's good to go to the other extreme. So I chose uh, William Butler Eats' famous poem, The Second Coming, with which you may 
be already familiar. And Yeats wrote this a century ago like this. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Did he talk about us today? I don't know about that. But what I do know is that one of the virtues that uh, he did talk about in this poem, somewhat surreptitiously, moderation is sorely missing in today's world. So I wrote a book as an academic trying to talk about um, a um, virtue that has become extremely uh, elusive in today's politics and public life, and that is politics, in our, our politics today, and that is moderation. Today, the only famous line that uh, returns time and again in any discussion of moderation is certainly uh, Barry Goldwater, Waters that you are probably familiar with. Extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. I've always been shocked by this statement of Goldwater. Of course, after saying this, he went on and he scored a massive defeat at the polls in 1964. Well deserved it. Well deserved, I should say. But the fact of the matter is that there is some skepticism towards moderation here that I think we should take seriously into account. Is this the virtue that could help us regain that, um, let's say, stability and order that William Butler Eats was longing for a century ago and we are longing again today? So when I tried to read and read these authors for this book and write this book about three years ago, of course, we were not yet in the Trump era and I could not foresee that today a book like this would make it on NPR, New York Times, Washington Post, and George Mason University here. Uh, I thought it would be an academic book that would uh, actually complete a larger research agenda that I've been engaged in, which is to rediscover uh, the concept of political moderation and reconceptualize, in a way, the history of modern and uh, political thought through the lenses of um, this concept. So it seems that it's an ironical twist of events that a book like this, which is still an academic one, uh, has uh, become so relevant today, but I will take all the publicity that uh, this book can bring in order to make a point about why we need moderation today. So this is uh, uh, the larger agenda that I'm engaged, as an engaged spectator, if you wish. I want to show that moderation is relevant for us today, but I do so with the instruments of a historian of political thought. When I started writing this book with the five chapters, one on Raymond Aron in France, uh, um, Isaiah Berlin in England, and Michael Oakshot also in England, Norberto Bobbio in Italy, and Adam Michnik and Leszek Kolakowski in Co Poland, I, uh, I wanted to um, make a point about uh, how to study moderation. Uh, I uh, argue uh, that moderation resembles a lost archipelago that we must rediscover in, hi in the history of political thought. An archipelago is an interesting metaphor because it brings together a series of islands that are not connected visibly, at least, to each other. So the task of the historian of political thought is to show the similarities between these authors that share some themes, some concepts, some ideas, but they are not well known or visible for that matter. And uh, I'm wedded to this metaphor because of archipelago because I think it renders justice to both the elusive and the complex nature of this virtue. We all knew that moderation is a complex virtue. We all read the Nicomachean Ethics. We all know that um, Aristotle wrote about moderation in a form of uh, prudence. We maybe go even further back to Thucydides and Plato. They also wrote about moderation. So there's nothing new here. It's an ancient virtue 
that we can rediscover today. But it's a difficult one to study. With a virtue of this kind, uh, there's very few moral absolutes that we can come up with. Um, we can hardly agree on a definition of moderation, and this is reflected in the wide range of ethical, institutional, and political dimension that moderation uh, encompasses. Um, so the skepticism towards, towards moderation runs deep, and um, uh, one of the f challenges facing any student of, of this concept is uh, the fact, I think, that it is an inconspicuous virtue prone to understatement. It's very difficult to be excited about moderation. You can be excited about freedom, about liberty, about e equality, about justice, but moderation doesn't seem to carry that emotional connotation with it. It seems to lack charisma, and it often carries the connotation of small-mindedness and philistine dullness. Um, soft moralism, that's what moderation is all about. That's Nietzsche's view of moderation. So um, I think that we need to take that into account. Um, also, we need to uh, pay attention to the fact that moderates are or have been uh, often marginalized, derided, ignored, or simply forgotten, while uh, moder moderation has been stigmatized in Burke's own words as the virtue of cowards, and compromise was stigmatized as the prudence of traitors, virtue of cowards, prudent of tra prudence of traitors. So this is uh, deeply ingrained, I think, in the um, imaginary of, uh, of uh, uh, various ages, and I think in the mental imaginary of various ages. And I, I wonder why. Why is this the case? Well, for one thing, moderation seems to be a vague virtue, too imprecise to be rigorously analyzed. In analytical philosophy, for example, it's very difficult to talk about moderation because moderation seems to be a positional virtue depending on the intensity of the extremes. Uh, its universe seems uncertain and fuzzy, defying apodictic statements, and this is what philosophers do like. Uh, there are uh, no stark contrasts uh, with moderation, brune, uh, brown, red, green, white. It's only shades of gray, 50 shades of gray, Peter. I think that's, that's what would be the, uh, the universe of moderation. Maybe less than 50, but certainly quite a few. In ordinary language, a moderate person, as I mentioned, carries the connotation of someone incapable of making strong decisions, someone uh, associated with docility, uh, pettiness, submissiveness, and sometimes opportunism. Some moderates have seen as wishy-washy, flip-floppers. And uh, that is certainly the opposite of fortitude, decisiveness, um, clarity of purpose and firmness. Uh, and, and sometimes moderation was seen as the opposite of uh, democratic reforms. You cannot push for democratic reforms, for justice, for um, uh, equal rights uh, if you are a moderate. Uh, so I think there is something to be said about this. But I think the difficulty of studying moderation uh, lies not only uh, and it's not only related to the skepticism, but also to uh, the fact that uh, we must study the contexts and the various functions and purposes that this concept has been uh, used. Uh, such con complex concepts like moderation are never used in isolation. They are part of entire belief systems. Uh, so uh, you can't study moderation apart from fanaticism, zealotry, extremism, and radicalism. They belong to a semantic field so in studying moderation, you also need to reach out to uh, uh, other related concepts, both prudence, um, uh, temperance, uh, synonyms, but also antonyms such as radicalism, extremism, and zealotry. So I think that that, that has to be said because we can only use um, a, a historical approach that seeks to capture the various uses of moderation and the varying intentions with which this concept has been employed over time by actors placed in specific 
political, social, and cultural uh, context. And to this effect, we must study, and this is what I've done in my previous work, A Virtue for Courageous Minds, perhaps less so than in this work, we must study the embodiment of moderation in specific time-bound institutions, constitutions, and political practices. It's, it's not enough to talk about moderation as an ethical trait of character. You need to look at institutions and constitutional devices, such as balance of powers, mixed government, federalism, and uh, executive veto. Uh, so uh, paying attention to this legal constitutional ramifications of the idea of moderation, I think, is central to this, uh, I, uh, I, I, this project of larger um, uh, study of moderation. So. Um, I think that uh, having said that, um, it's also important to add one additional dimension that might, might shed light on why this is an elusive concept. Um, moderation has many faces. Moderates have worn many f f masks over time. It's difficult to point to one of them, and I think it would be a mistake to do so. So um, over time, I think you can find traces of moderation in, in Stoicism, Seneca or Cicero. <coughs> in those who talked about prudence, from Aristotle to Machiavelli, Guicciardini, and Baltasar Gracian in 17th century Spain. You can also find traces of moderation in a political tradition called trimming. Trimming is a nautical metaphor. It comes from trimming the sails of the ship in order to keep the ship on an even keel, from preventing, preventing it from capsizing. And that metaphor goes as back to the Marquis of Halifax, who wrote the famous essay in 1684, The Character of a Trimmer. But you can also find it in the works of Michael Oakeshott in the 20th century, a great admirer of Halifax. You can also find traces of moderation in the skeptical tradition, tradition of skepticism, going um, back to Hume and Montaigne. You can also find traces of mod mo moderation in the pluralist tradition. And here uh, we can bring James Madison, but also Isaiah Berlin, who is actually part of the current book. And then you, you, found, you can also find traces of moderation in uh, critics of zealotry and enthusiasm, like Burke, again, and Hume, and eclecticism in France, 19th century doctrine of eclecticism is important. Today, if you ask me, I would look at the tradition of the committed observer, social criticism. Michael Walzer is one of them, but most importantly for me is Raymond Aron, about whom I wrote a full chapter in this book. You would also want to know probably that there are different types of moderate political agendas. And uh, while I have not studied all of them in this book, I, I did study at least a couple. Um, there's the juste milieu between revolution and reaction in 19th century France, but also the tradition of ordo liberalism in post-war Germany. I see it as having something to do with political moderation. If you want more, we can also look at the party of moderates in today's uh, Sweden an interesting party worth studying, but also there were some social movements that had something to say about moderation. <coughs> Milan Kundera actually referred to the Prague Spring Movement of 1968 as a revolt of the moderates. This is Kundera's term. But I, I looked in the book, in chapter 6 of this book, at the self-limiting revolution in communist Poland that started with the Committee for the Defense of Workers in the works of um, uh, Adam Michnik, Jacek Kuron, and others that led to the Solidarność movement that actually ended with the dismantling of communism in 1989. There were also other movements. One of them is the third wave movement in um, late 90s in the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, and a little bit here in the United States under um, Bill Clinton. So having pointed out the difficulty of studying moderation, 
as well as the multifaceted nature of this concept, I would like to uh, tackle the question, what do moderates stand for? It would seem that they affirm at least three basic attitudes, and they are reflected in, all, uh, I think, all of the cha six chapters of this book. First, they defend pluralism of ideas, interests, and social forces, and they seek to achieve a balance between them. Um, but undergirding this balance, there's a, a vision of a free and decent society that emphasizes the importance of the public domain, what keeps us together as free and equal citizens. Um, moderates are also interested in promoting relationships with their opponents, and actually political opponents, and keeping the dialogue open with them. Radicals and extremists are usually not. Second, moderates tend to prefer gradual reforms to revolutionary breakthrough. They are more in tune with the need for compromises and timely concessions, and they are prepared to rally sometimes around the part that is least bad among their opponents, even when that party is still remote from their own views, the least evil. Thirdly, moderation presupposes a tolerant approach, but tolerant in this sense that they, they tend not to see the world through binary terms, Manichaean terms, friends and foes. This is something that is very uh, modern today. We like to define politics in terms of us versus them, friends and foe. And this is something that the moderates ref refuse to do. Forces of the good or light versus forces of uh, the evil or darkness. So moderation, moderates tend to stay away from that. They acknowledge that political activity, like Adam Michnik in Poland, for example, is by nature impure and cannot always be judged against the pre precepts of a single code of morality. No litmus tests in other words, for moderates. Sometimes there are some red lines that they can draw, but no litmus test, no purity, no search for ideological, moral, religious, or political purity. For them, politics is never a conflict between the good and the evil, but always a choice in Raymond Aron's terms between what is acceptable and what is detestable. And those terms are given and are illuminated by the historical experience. You can make sensible decisions, but you don't have to demonstrate the truth. You are aware that there are risks, but there's no ideology. So in this regard, I think there's a fundamental opposition to ideological thinking that we see in these mm -hmm. authors. I have a, a nice quote that uh, I think illustrates this, which I borrowed from Ortega y Gasset. I don't know whether you are familiar with this author. Nobody reads The Revolt of the Masses anymore, but it's still a great author to read. The Revolt of the Masses was a book written in 1929. But Ortega never defined himself as, as a man of the right or of the left. This is what he said. In, um, uh, in the 1920s. Aligning oneself with the left as with the right is only one of the numberless ways open to men of being an imbecile. Both are forms of moral hemiplegia, which is a form of stroke. Because only the ideologues, those who act by the book, have the answers before they look at the solutions. So moderates, as a result, tend to be skeptical towards any politics of faith, any form of ideological thinking, and they tend to embrace what I call, based on Michael Oakeshott's terms, a politics of skepticism as opposed to a politics of faith. The enthusiast partisans of politics of faith see themselves as um, confidence of providence. They think they're always 100% right. And we, most of the time, I can be 55% right. An old Jew from Galicia in Czeslav Milos' book said, if you find someone who is 55% right, that's good, be happy with it. If you find someone who claims to be 65, take it, you may not get better. If you find someone who claims to be 75%, 
that's suspicious. And if you claim, if you find someone who claims to be 100% right, that's a thug, that's a fanatic. Stay away, run as quickly as you can. So moderates distrust those who claim that they are always right. They distrust, in other words, simplicity. They like to keep the complexity of the world, gray as it may be. Gray too can be beautiful, Adam Michnik says. And they are not bothered by the nuances of gray that characterize the political sphere. Um, and this opposition to thinking ideologically, I think, is what defines and brings together all of the thinkers, Aron, Berlin, Bobbio, Oakshot, Michnik, and Kolakowski. Uh, they uh, know it's gr a great error to speak of political things absolutely and, as it were, by the book. No choice is perfect, cost-free. We must make prudent distinctions and so forth. So there's a certain style with which I like to end my, my uh, short intervention uh, here. Uh, there's a certain style of moderation as well. There's not only a political vision behind it, but moderates espouse a certain style. They refuse to consider themselves moral authorities entitled to give lessons to their fellow citizens. They reject moral posturing. And uh, they always work with a reserve clause. There's self-doubt uh, and self-questioning. They like to self-subvert themselves. One of the books that I like a lot is, um, uh, was written by Albert Hirschman, who wrote about a propensity for self-subversion. There's nothing wrong with self-subverting your positions. You have to be open to the facts. When the facts change, you don't keep your positions just because you happen to believe them at one time. You try to make amends. You want, you want to learn something from experience. Moderates do so. And that's why it's not, it's not an accident that, for example, someone like Raymond Daron started on the left of the political spectrum and then moved towards let's say, to the, the right, though he was never a man of the right, properly speaking. It's not, it's not I think, a, um, an irony that uh, a man of the left, like Norberto Bobbio, studied on the left and then moved a little bit to the right as well, because they learned that somewhere the truth is, is, is in the middle and they need to make adjustments. And I think that that's something that defines very well the style of the moderates. Um, I think that uh, they believe that uh, they are neither saints nor monsters in the political sphere and they seek to work with what's given rather than uh, to reform and start everything uh, fresh. They are not utopian or perfectionist in this regard. So I um, ended my previous book, um, uh, Virtue for Courageous Minds, with a decalogue for moderation. I'm interested in, uh, in the irony of this uh, decalogue of moderation. There's nothing more uh, immoderate than a decalogue. But I, I, I want to remind you what this decalogue might be because I'm interested in taking this book, the academic one, Faces Moderation, and writing a book called Rules for Moderates Today. I want, I want that book to be available in bookstores at airports. I want people to be able to read it, think about it. So if there's something wrong with that, let me know. But I do think that there is something to be said about this, and um, I think that's very important. One is that do not assume that moderation has one face. We always talk about moderation. I was recently on NPR for a full hour talking about this book, and, and I read the comments of the listeners, and everyone thinks that moderation is just one face. It's wrong. There are ethical, political, constitutional, religious connotation. So moderation is not just one face. Two, moderation can be defended for different reasons. You can defend moderation by temperament, and some people are moder moderate by temperament. But you can defend moderation out of fear, just because you fear the extremes. You fear the worst pa of passionate intensity. It's nightmare. You can defend moderation from necessity or as a matter of principle. So all of this can be together, but uh, I think for me the most challenging form of moderation is the principled form of moderation, which may or may not be uh, 
the case. But I'm interested in the fact that some of the authors here, like Adam Michnik, had an immoderate temperament, but a politically moderate sensibility. So you can have a, 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 a personal immoderate character and a political moderation. Three, pay attention to the constitutional elements of moderation. Always look at the balance that they seek to achieve in politics, bicameralism, mixed government. Number four, um, it's very important to look at uh, the agendas of moderation, not just the virtue, but what the agendas are. Number five, I want to emphasize moderates do not lack political vision. There's a certain vision of a decent and free society and the public good. Number six, moderates seek to keep the ship of the state on an even keel. They are the trimmers, and that's an important uh, metaphor that uh, appears in the chapter on Michael Oxshott. Seven, moderation is an eclectic virtue. Um, it should never be interpreted as an ideology, and it would be, I think, an error to regard it as a positional virtue. Eight, moderation is not a conservative virtue, as it may seem. It has affinities with different political traditions, and moderates can exist on the left, in the center, as well as on the right of the political spectrum. This is something that is not easily understood, and uh, we can talk more about it. Number nine, moderates can sometimes promote alone radical ideas, and moderation is not a synonym of complacency and apathy or a defense of the status quo. So in other words, the phrase a bold moderate, bold moderate, is not an oxymoron. And number 10, moderation, however, is not a virtue for everyone and for all seasons. I do not believe that moderates are always on the good side of history and radicals on the other side. I think sometimes we need a little bit of poison to bring our bodies back in order. Political bodies do not uh, make an exception to the rule. But I think that um, whether or not we think that moderation is the supreme virtue of the legislators, as Montesquieu wanted us to believe, we should remember and be prepared to in admit with David Hume that extreme of all kinds are to be avoided. And though no one will ever please either faction by moderate opinions, it is there that we are most likely to meet with truth and certainty, and I would add reasonableness. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to um, reiterate Aurelian's thanks um, to everyone involved in organizing this, particularly to Claire Morgan, and also thank you all for coming. Um, and also thank Aurelian himself for writing a really wonderfully rich book, which I could um, talk about far longer than my allotted time, but I will try to restrain both my admiration and my captiousness um, and, and talk briefly. Um, like Aurelian's previous book, which he mentioned, A Virtue for Courageous Minds, Faces of Moderation is both a work of intellectual history and of political theory. And it has, I think, two main purposes or contributions in each of those dimensions. As a work of intellectual history, he seeks to both offer learned, perceptive, and revealing portraits of individual thinkers viewed through the lens of moderation as a theme, and also to trace the defense of moderation as a major strand in 20th century political thought, and to uncover or recover um, and trace out the main features of a certain, what he describes as a loosely defined school of moderation, which has not really been treated as a distinctive element before. As a work of political theory, he seeks, as he's mentioned, to analyze the idea and the, the practice of moderation itself, and also to draw on this reconstruction of moderation as a resource for thinking about politics. 
I want to emphasize very briefly four notable, notable features of Kraljutu's account um, as a work of history, um, some of which he's already mentioned, before raising a few brief questions about both the historical account and the political implications. First, the temporal focus on 20th century political thought underscores the fact that moderation as an intellectual tendency is often reactive. It's often provoked by an experience of extremes. And this raises the possibility that those situations, those conditions, which are good for fostering moderate thought may not be good for the flourishing of moderate institutions. Whether this should be a cheerful or depressing thought today, um, I'm not sure. Second, Kayutu shows that moderation both has a distinctive ethical core and also, as he's emphasized, it's politically protean. The thinkers he studies occupy a number of different places on the political spectrum, and some of them, and this I think is a particularly important point, some of them were not conservative, were not temporizing, um, were not cautious, but were in fact quite radical. And this idea of the radical potential of moderation is, I think, one of the more interesting and rich parts of Kraljutu's account here. At the same time, there's an important unity in these thinkers in terms of a certain philosophical tendency. All of them adopted to greater or for lesser extents a pluralistic perspective on moral and political life. And this brings out an element of Kraljutu's account which he doesn't emphasize as much. In fact, I believe he only mentions it briefly in a footnote, um, which is that the school of moderation he's discussing is quite different from earlier schools or versions of moderation, particularly Aristotle, um, who does not have this pluralistic perspective on the ethical life. Also, and, and this is a point that it Aurelian made briefly, this book really emphasizes moderation as a feature of, as he writes, sensibility, ethos, and style rather than institutions. He's writing about Berlin there, but that applies, I think, to many of the thinkers he discusses in this book. And as he's mentioned, this represents a shift of emphasis from his previous book, where institutions were more to the fore. And this raises a couple of questions. First, what is the balance in thinking about moderation between concern with institutions and a focus on ethos or temperament? And also, does this represent a historical shift, an interesting difference between the political thought of late 18th and early 19th century France and that of the 20th century. As Aurelia knows, I have my own answer to this question, but I, I want to um, ask him about it. All of these points suggest some further questions about this account of moderation, which are of both historical and political theoretical significance. First, is Kayutu here presenting a picture of moderation as such, or of a particular school of moderation, which may be quite different from other earlier and indeed later variants. How much of, of, of what Kraju writes about with this school is true of moderates as such, moderates in general, and how much of it is distinctive to this one 20th century moment? Second, just how unified is this particular group of moderates? Kraju, who identifies consistency in both style and content among these thinkers, but I'm not so sure about either of those. Stylistically, there does seem to be a sharp difference between, for instance, Camus, who he mentions very briefly, with his 
anguished cries against the injustice of the present order, and Michael Oakeshott's defense of tradition, defense of that which is. There also seems to be a certain tension or difference between in Steinhardt's call for a violent moderation, an extreme center on the one hand, and Berlin's warning against turning liberalism itself into a faith militant, or Adam Miknik's warning against anti-communism with a Bolshevik face. The difficulty of, of identifying common content among these thinkers can be brought out by looking at one theme which I think being here we really should talk about, which is the relationship between moderation and the defense of liberty. First of all, these different thinkers all came to different political positions in the way that they thought about the nature of a free society, the policies and institutions most essential to a free society. But they also philosophically embraced very different conceptions of liberty. You have Berlin and to some extent Bobbio, who interestingly, and, and I think this is a telling point, are more towards the left of this group, who embrace a strictly negative conception of liberty. You have Hayek, um, left out of this account, which being at the Hayek Center, um, early, and I, I think you may need to justify, um, but who, who articulates a curious concept of liberty which is not quite negative or positive. You have Oakshot actually accepting a positive conception of liberty, and Aron really challenging the idea of thinking about liberty altogether and preferring to talk about liberties in the plural. So is there such a thing as a distinctively modern way of thinking about liberty, a mo moderate conception of liberty or a moderate way of pursuing liberty? It's unclear, at least from this particular subset of thinkers. In thinking about the political implications of moderation, though, there's another question, which is how much moderation is a political virtue at all and how much is it a private virtue? And Bobbio, in particular, suggests that moderation may not have much place in politics. And this is something that, that Bobbio changes on a little bit, but certainly in his later years, he talks about meekness as, quote, the least political of virtues and suggests that there may be a trade-off between cultivating the virtues of moderation and achieving success in the rough and tumble, often ruthless, political arena. Are those who, who would be moderate and defend moderation condemned either to act and perhaps to think immoderately in politics for, for the sake of efficacy or to withdraw from politics in order to preserve their moderate integrity? He Aurelian confronts this question asking, quote, how can a virtue such as meekness be effective in curbing the universal appetite for power and the inclination to violence inherent in human nature? And I would add, often regnant in politics. Well, I'm not sure what his answer is, or if there's an answer to this question. But it does present, I think, a central dilemma, a central worry um, that was is really important to these thinkers and which we have to think about today. Aurelian, in his conclusion, seems to suggest, if I read him correctly, that it may be necessary and right to abandon moderate means or temper in, 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 in order to aggressively defend moderate ends or institutions. But this seems to go against what some of the thinkers he studies suggested. The, the worry vo voiced by Bobbio and closely echoed by Berlin and Miknik that evil means corrupt even the best of ends. 
So the pursuit of moderation through immoderate means may be self-undermining. One application or one example of this tension, which comes up intermittently, but I think importantly in the book, is the issue of partisanship or party spirit. And here again, things are a little ambiguous. First of all, there's a tendency to often identify partisanship with extremism, with immoderation. Although the work of political theorists such as Nancy Rosenblum and Russ Muirhead has recently called this into question. And Fayou's own account on, of this is a bit ambivalent as I read it. On the one hand, he suggests that moderates cannot easily or permanently take partisan sides, that their political commitments and alignments have a, quote, provisional and skeptical cast incompatible with party spirit. But he also says that moderation, quote, thrives on partisanship. His cast of moderates encompasses those who disavowed or derided party spirit altogether, such as Halifax, those who aligned with parties while maintaining a degree of critical distance. And I think this is the position that he's most drawn to, the position of Aron, Bobbio, some others. But there are also those who were ardent partisans. And so in his chapter on Berlin, he actually devotes considerable attention to Berlin's friend Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. Um, but if ever there was a man who belied Krajutu's statement that it, when moderates align with a the party, they refuse to go all in, it was Arthur Schlesinger who became uh, an operative to a great degree of the Democratic Party. And this issue of partisanship relates to the central metaphor of trimming, which is important to the overall account of moderation here, and I, I think is a very um, fertile, but also, again, a somewhat ambiguous idea. First of all, it's important to point out that trimming is a situational, responsive approach, which, depending on circumstances, might require a compromising, concession-making approach, or seeking to withstand and resist um, the winds if they are pu pushing too far in one direction. So trimming can actually be um, intransigent, resistant at times. But how to know the right way to go in any particular situation? The moderate answer, I think, is that it depends. It's a situa situational question. You have to be responsive to and, and perceptive of the particular conditions of the time. But it, it more concretely, if moderation is under attack from extremists, what is the best political strategy? And we might imagine two alternatives in the world of party politics. One would be to reach across the aisle, as it were, to seek to create a coalition of moderates, something that Aurelians and, and, and my colleague Bill Goldston is currently involved in doing. Another approach, though, would be to, for moderates to seek to, well, moderate their own party, their own group, to tame, to dissuade the extremists. Now, which, which of those approaches is better? Well, the moderate answer is surely it depends. It depends on the particular circumstances. And I think that's it's right. But I think that it, it points to one particular question, which is not really addressed in the book and which I'd, I'd invite Aurelian to think more about. And in, that is the point that there are immoderates and immoderates. There are some immoderates who can be e tamed, who can be reasoned with, and there are others who can't. I won't say anything about which sort our current president is. You can, you can think about that for yourself. But it, intellectually, I think this points to 
the need in thinking about moderation and thinking about the challenges of to moderate, to think more about immoderation and to trace out in a way similar to what Aurelian has done with the archipelago of moderation, the different kinds of immoderation, the different kinds of extremism um, as both a psychological um, and uh, philosophical matter. Um, and this is, this is something that, that some political theorists have started to do, but I, I think there's much more work to be done. I want to make one final point before stopping. Following Berlin and others, Aurelian emphasizes the difficulty of moderation and confronts the question of whether moderation can, quote, inspire and speak to those who crave for more heroic solutions and entertain bolder dreams of changing the world. How attractive can moderation be? Will a moderate agenda only appeal to those who already have a certain temperament of moderation? And is such a temperament inborn or formed early on, or can it be cultivated over time in response to events? Well, Aurelian's already mentioned that Miknik, and I, I would add Oakshot, um, had immoderate temperaments in certain respects, but were able to, to some extent, discipline themselves when it came to politics and cultivate deliberately a moderate political sensibility. And that, that certainly offers hope that moderation can be cultivated. Um, although even then, it still seems to be very much a minority taste and a minority achievement. But it might be illuminating to explore more deeply and in greater detail the struggle to be moderate. And if I have one one criticism of the book, and, and Aurelian mentioned the fear that this might be an echo chamber here, so I want to push against that and, and mention one criticism, um, which is that I think at times he gives an overly irenic account of moderation. Um, he notes some tension, some, some uh, doubts, but I think he doesn't really plumb the depth of the anguish, um, the uncertainty that some of these figures, particularly Berlin and Bobbio, felt about their own moderation and how much their moderation was really a hard-won position in the case of Bobbio, who described himself as being prone to fits of rage. He, he referred to his holy rages, which would erupt when he was morally indignant. Um, Berlin expressed great anguish over his inability to take a stronger stand. Um, his essay on Turgenev really explores the agony of moderation. And I think in thinking about how moderation might win out. Um, it's important not just to look at the political sphere, but also at the inner doubts of these moderate figures. In raising these problems, I, I think that the book does a great service, um, as it does in reminding us of the benefit in our own doubts, and perhaps our despair over moderation, of revisiting the achievements and, yes, the doubts and agonies of these earlier moderate masters. Um, and with that, I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you to the organizers. Uh, thank you for Aurelian for writing this book and a whole series of books on moderation. Um, Aurelian's project is to make moderation politically and intellectually serious. It happens to be a, a project which I very much share. Um, but I might as well uh, give you a, a fair warning. I want to push it further. 
So I'm impatient with the moderation with which uh, Aurelian is articulating moderation. I, I am, uh, if I may say so, a fanatic of moderation. 100%. Exactly, exactly. So that tells you, okay, you know, don't believe anything I say. <laughs> Run. Um, uh, now, so nonetheless, it is the project of making moderation politically intellectual series is very close to my heart. So I could spend whatever time I'm uh, given just praising the book. And there are two problems with that. One, it would be really boring. And two, it wouldn't advance the cause of articulating the project of moderation very much. So instead, um, I'm going to be critical, but in a, in a friendly uh, way. Uh, so, uh, one, uh, one other sort of preliminary comment. Um, th these two are political theorists. They are historians of political ideas. I'm not. Um, so, some of the differences will be simply because of that. Um, uh, for example, uh, when uh, it's emphasized that moderation has to be skeptical about simplicity, the part of me that really likes mathematical models and social science kind of uh, <laughs> uh, is ready to protest. All right, so we, there is a, a bit of difference there, but I, I think that's secondary. So if I were to summarize the difference, it would be in light of what Aurelian said, a central key point about moderation. He said, it is an eclectic virtue, not never an ideology. So I'm going to try out the opposite position. Moderation is or ought to be an ideology, and virtue ought to be only a part of it. So marginalize the virtue part, uh, emphasize the um, ideology part. Uh, this will require some explanation, and I'll give some of the explanation. I'm going to uh, organize my comments just uh, borrowing from Aurelian's summary in the last part of the book, epilogue, he gives six, he calls them meta-narratives, or six points summarizing uh, the book. So I thought I would organize uh, my comments, at least uh, to a degree, uh, based on that. The first meta-narrative. So the main point uh, that uh, Aurelian makes is um, moderation has many faces. It's uh, that form a distinctive style and agenda. He's very much said that it should not be identified with a mentality, set of personal characteristic, a virtue. But yet, unlike his previous book, this book is just about you know 87 percent mathematical models, 87 percent about virtue. S you know, starting from the beginning, it's all about virtue and, you know, the difficult virtues. It's reflected in the comments. So I think we should resist that because I don't think it is possible to make moderation into a politically and intellectually serious project if we are so preoccupied with it as a virtue. You know, so virtue, our cardinal virtues, moderation, uh, justice, prudence, courage, and so on. Uh, that seems to me just not a, a helpful uh, context. And it goes in part to the institutional aspect, which is also dear to my heart, which Aurelian uh, did emphasize in his comments, not so much in the book. But it's more than that, and I, I want to say something um, more. So um, 
if uh, if we're to make uh, if we were to think of moderation more as a school of thought, more as a project, I wanted to sort of for social science, operationalize that. You know, what would it mean? Ah, so one way to uh, to operationalize that is I have on my bookshelf an old textbook used for courses all across the United States in ideologies. So courses, uh, political ideologies. So I, I, I looked up the organization of that uh, book. It's Ideals and Ideologies is the, is the title, and the parts are the democratic ideal, liberalism, conservatism, socialism and communism, fascism, liberation ideologies, green politics, radical Islamism. Those are the ideologies. I would say that I would like, okay, my ambition, I think our ambition ought to be to to make it credible to put moderation as another part of that list. At the moment, it is not. But I think to really strengthen the idea, to really strengthen the project of moderation, it ought to be so in the conventional sense as taught by these courses in, uh, I say American universities, I don't know where else, ideology. Okay, so, uh, our ambition ought to be to make moderation into an ideology in this sense, um, which is some combination of a perspective, a framework for understanding, explaining, describing reality, combined with some a source for making the world better. And that involves both ideals and strategies and institutions. I think that's what these ideologies, liberalism, conservatism, socialism, etc., have that is distinctive. So point number one, I think it ought to be our, ambi our ambition as proponents of moderation to make moderation a plausible candidate for that list. Uh, the uh, uh, meta-narrative number two um, contrasts what Aurelian calls thinking politically with thinking ideologically. And here, there's a different sense of ideology, which definitely is not moderate. And that is the dogmatic, um, unfallibilist uh, notion uh, of ideology. Um, so we can be an ideology in the first sense without being an ideology in the second sense, and that surely is important. I do want to challenge Aurelian on um, calling the alternative, and I, I'm not really challenging him when I'm challenging him, I'm also challenging his authors, so to speak, because he is constrained here by, uh, by, uh, by the authors, even if they are the best chosen authors, there are only, you know, there's some things they will not cover. Thinking politically, it seems to me that's too narrow, so the, the contrast in Metanarrative 2 is between thinking ideologically this dogmatic uh, thinking, and thinking politically. Well, actually, it's not just politically. And when, you know, we could start arguing about what is political and so on, which I think would not be helpful. I think there's a conception of practical reason that is uh, important there. And in a way, uh, the, 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 the format of the book does not allow Aurelian to dig deeper into, into this whole line of thought. There is a moderate tradition of thinking about practical reason, about limited rationality. Uh, and 
the, 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 the sort of uh, strategies of thought, of decision making, of institution making that are required by, if I just focus on that, our limited brain, the fact that we're stupid. This, this is uh, familiar stuff, but it's missing in this discussion. And, to the, and again, I don't know, uh, maybe, it's in any case crucial to moderation, I think. And it's crucial to moderation to think deeply about this as many moderate thinkers do. Um, again, I'm, you know, I was particularly, again, coming here, I have, but even when I'm not coming here, I have in my mind the, the Ostroms uh, for whom this was an important uh, component. Uh, I would say an important moderate tradition, not European, uh, Aurelian was uh, restricting himself to um, Europeans. So, um, anyway, I could, I could elaborate much more on this very point, which just, when you say only uh, thinking politically versus thinking ideologically, it, it prevents us from appreciating the deeper possibilities of moderate theory on this front. Um, I'm going to skip to meta-narrative number six. Um, which is where uh, Aurelian says there is a veiled critique of moderation in his book, and it's not, not really all that veiled. He uh, advocates moderation, but then he takes it back. So in my capacity as a fanatic, uh, I would like to contest the taking back. But I contest the taking back because I don't think we should think of moderation as a virtue. I think uh, it's better thought as a project. And you know, how, do we, how, how would we teach this project? Well, what would be in the canon? Among other things, there would be thinkers, like the thinkers Aurelian is writing about, or Aurelian himself. But there would also be certain practitioners, certain events that are paradigmatic of moderation. And here, here is where my distinct kind of moderation comes out. When I tell you the three names, or the three names and categories that come immediately to mind, 20th century, important to, in response to the crisis of 20th century, as reflected in the Yeats poem uh, Aurelian started with, um, great moderates, Mohandas Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and the solidarity movement fighting communism, beginning to organize, not yet as solidarity in the early to mid 70s, culminating in the 80, 81 period, when it really challenged, for the first time, thoroughly challenged uh, communist uh, power. Those are, for me, the most inspiring examples of moderation. Um, they are nonviolent, they're committed to pluralism. Uh, they also have a distinct moral perspective, which I think is very interesting. That is, for Gandhi, there's a satyagraha, satya means reality. For Martin Luther King, natural law. For um, the people who were developing the thinking of solidarity, there was also a kind of turn to, in the language they used, transcendental source or transcendental basis for morality and ideals. So that which of course combined with experimentalism, Gandhi famously combined it with experimentalism. That seems to me 
an important aspect of the moderate project. When we talk about those three, which is, uh, Aurelian talks about radical moderation when talking about Michnik, which is his entry into the Polish case. Um, I, I, I would say transformative moderation because I, I would prefer to leave the word radical for the people I oppose. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, feel free to go either way. So in this book, it is solidarity as seen through Michnik that is uh, the window onto this phenomenon. Honestly, I, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with Michnik being the representative here because Kwiatkowski is a great thinker. We had this discussion and Aurelian uh, agrees. But also, it's a combination of people. It's a, it's a, it's a developing, emerging set of institutions. Um, Aurelian talks in this context about the idea of self-limiting revolution or uh, one of its uh, larger categories, the Velvet Revolution, Color Revolution, Nonviolent Revolution. But the idea of civic society, unfortunately commonly talked about as civil society, that really emerges in that period and in Poland uh, perhaps more than anywhere else. It was nothing before. It was a big deal afterwards. Even the idea of human rights as a central feature of, of making the world better. Again, you know, yes, there was Universal Declaration, but until the 70s, uh, it wasn't that big a deal. It became globally a big deal with Jimmy Carter, but, you know, the national security advisor of Jimmy Carter is Vigny Brzezinski, who certainly talked with the Poles, being one himself. All right, so... Um, if we allow that as an important aspect of project of moderation, then the reasons at least Aurelian gives for being only, you know, sometimes a moderate, I think is much weaker. Because his big example, common big example, is Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther King, letter from Birmingham jail, famously criticizes his critics, calling them moderate and sense distancing himself from moderation. But I would say that's transformative moderation criticizing pseudo-moderation or moderation that is inappropriate to the, uh, to the situation. So I don't think we should uh, conclude from that particular choice of language that Martin Luther King is not a moderate. I think the crucial question is how does the politics uh, exemplified by Gandhi, Martin Luther King, or solidarity, how does it differ from real radicalism Differ, differs profoundly. You know, the, the choice is between Gandhi and Lenin. It's a deep choice, and it allows, if we appropriate it for moderation, it allows moderation to play a much greater, more significant, deeper role, both uh, politically and intellectually. Um, I, I'm sure I'm running out of time, so let me um, skip to... Um, a, fun, uh, a final uh, point. Um, if we're going to be serious about moderation, we don't need a comprehensive theory of the virtue of moderation. Well, good luck with that. Uh, what we need is, again, think of what radicals have. Radicals have lots of radical theories. And I, I actually thought I would bring some books, you know, intellectual map of radical theories today. It's a vast territory, including all kinds of controversies. Uh, so there's a great variety. We ought to develop great variety of moderate theories. 
but there's also this bit about Karl Marx. Uh, so I, I think we should be open to the possibility of systematic and deep thinking uh, in the moderate style. I would say that a great many people that we normally identify as classics of social theory uh, have contributed a great deal that one can draw on. Uh, some of them would simply be appropriated as de Tocqueville, um, but others one can draw on to develop this uh, moderate um, alternative. Uh, an, an example to end. Revolutions are the great locomotives of history uh, for uh, radicals. Um, I think it would be helpful to the cause of the moderate project if we develop ways of thinking about history uh, that takes on board the fact that the great revolutions of history, such as the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, um, were extraordinarily costly transition. I'll give the, uh, the Soviet version from, from which I take this comment via joke. So what, is, what was the uh, Bolshevik Revolution? What is socialism? Uh, it's a great and costly transition from capitalism to capitalism. Um, so that's that's you know that's the uh, uh, the role of revolutions in history is at extraordinary cost to stay in place. Um, so what what can we moderates substitute for that? I would suggest I've been suggesting some time idea of renewal. So just a quick uh, version here: 17th century was a century of profound crisis in a variety of ways. Toward the end of 17th century. There were a couple of things happening in England involving Newton, involving Locke, involving glorious revolution. That provoked a real transformation, then going to France, enlightenment, and so on, a renewal. And you know, historians do talk about a change in, in climate across Europe, but especially in some countries as a result. So a renewal following a crisis. Well, we certainly have had a crisis of the ongoing 20th century. You know, I'm an optimist, so I would say, oh, 1989, is, that's it. But no, actually, the radicalisms are still with us in a big way. So ongoing crisis of 20th century, what a moderate would look for is a potential for renewal. And there is, if you, if you look at the various innovations, uh, especially second half of 20th century, if you look at Gandhi, <laughs> if you look at uh, the changes in democracies involving constitutional courts, which can enforce democracy even when a majority selects Hitler. Well, he never got a majority, but anyway. Um, so there, the, one can see emerging possibility of uh, a renewal that would, so there's potential for renewal after the crisis of the long 20th century. And I had this thought as I was reading Aurelian's book. Um, I was actually reading it in a faux restaurant waiting for my faux order. And he starts with the Yates poem. It is the way to describe the feeling of the crisis of 20th century. So it's the right way to begin uh, Aurelian's book, and it's the right way for him to begin the, uh, the talk today. So I thought I would end, to create an isometry in our debate, uh, I thought I would end with uh, the poem I wrote 
um, in the Faux restaurant. Um, the title is After Yates. Turning and turning in the narrowing gyre, the falcon um, hears again the falconer. Things come together. The, sanger, the center rises bold. Beauty and balance shine upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide retreats, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is restored. The worst lack all conviction, while the best are full of passionate intensity. So a moderate hope for renewal at the end of crisis. See, I, okay, so I, I, I'm going to use my prerogative here. Um, people here are not surprised. Maybe I'm not moderate about being. Um, but here's, the, here's the, the problem, I think, with some of that. And it comes out in the, in the book. And Carol, it also comes out in some pieces that you've written over the years, which is a kind of a Goldilocks approach. All right, so the way that you solve this is, you know, just a little bit of that and a little bit of this. You know, we don't want it too hot. We don't want it too cold. Just right. And so you're going to do that with liberalism and socialism. But the problem is, is that economics is not politics. You would not say that about physics or chemistry or anything like that. There's a difference there. Now, there is about politics that's different. And in fact, I... In your book, you know, I sent you a bunch of questions about your book. But in your book, I think, again, this is beyond the book. This is in future kind of things. I think you're leaving on the table a very important potential, like, wedge debate that you could be engaged in, which is Knight and Polanyi on truth judgments in politics. So, you know, Polanyi developed this model about how it is that the science, Republic of Science works. And then he tried to relate that to the way in which a free society should operate. And Knight rejected that. And this is an article in ethics, so it's not like hidden in some weird place or whatever. And then Buchanan revisits it later on. And uh, the way that they address it is, is that Knight and Buchanan's position is that claims of truth judgment in politics is the path towards tyranny. So it's exactly the position that you guys hold. But that doesn't mean that the science of economics doesn't have truth judgments to it. And that those truth judgments could, in fact, and should affect, affect our discourse about politics. And that's Buchanan's uh, 1959 paper, which is, uh, you know, it's called, econo what is it, uh, Positive Economics, Welfare Economics, and Political Economy, or something like that, in which he tries to say how it is that the economists must engage in this debate over these discourses. And so then politics becomes about a way that you set up the institutions for this kind of pluralism and, and whatnot, but it doesn't have a content about like the policy. So now, just very quickly, you have, you know, when the rubber hits the road, and that's what I was looking for. Carol made reference to this too. So you get to the chapter about post-communism. You have a great opening line in there where you're that the, the muddy waters, right, of communism is sort of this testing ground. And then you give a very, very, very strong good example, which is how do you deal with past imperfects? In a post-communist society, how do you make up for the past wrongs? And you talk about, you know, uh, Michnik and also uh, uh, Havel going back and forth on this issue of lustration laws and things like that. All right, those things are actually very interesting political questions. How do you deal with the past and things like that? Those are different than whether or not you're going to have privatization 
monetary rule, things like that. So Mitchnick was literally wrong about uh, economics. This is what got him nuts. He went nuts because he thought Balcharovich, for example, was wrong on economics. But the, re the reality was, if you look at what the Zloty did over the next 20 years, Balcharovich was the one econo economic advisor who actually fixed the problem. It was politics that was always constantly va violating in there. And so I'm always reminded of this debate early on in the, in the 90s with, uh, on um, the uh, McNeil, what, is it? what was the thing on uh, McNeil Lair or whatever, the news hour? And it was Stephen Cohen and Jeffrey Sachs. And you got to remember in the beginning, Jeffrey Sachs was the big market advocate. And Jeffrey Sachs points out that, uh, look, if you double the money supply, you're going to double the price level. And Stephen Cohen says, how do you know that? And he says, we have 100 years of economic you know, theory that tells us that and, and data and everything. And, and, uh, and Cohen says, but I have 1,000 years of Russian history. And like, where did the debate go? It like died right, right there. And the point is, is that, you know, so what is the relationship between science and politics and the political structures that we have? And then where does moderation go? It's one thing to call yourself a pluralist in politics. But do we believe in pluralism in scientific position, or is pluralism a result of a scientific exchange process, right, that goes on? And I'm, I was, when I was thinking through this, I was thinking, look at these examples of people. And we don't want to have Goldilocks, because that doesn't work. That's actually just copying out. But at the same time, we don't want to have these extremisms. So how do you negotiate that relationship? <laughs> well, you know, the Ostroms were invoked, too. Eleanor said there is no panacea, but she also believed that we should do social science in a certain way, which required no, you know, she wasn't a pluralist about that you shouldn't do economics using a, the assumption of omniscience, or you shouldn't use the assumption of benevolence. I, 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 this is a serious question, and thanks for, for raising it. I think it was um, um, Josh, as well, who raised a similar point, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to, to get back to it is, um, uh, you know, what do we take our bearings from in politics? Certainly there is no politics more geometrico. This is Hobbes' approach to apply the rules of geometry to politics and derive a science of politics as if we were following rules of geometry. I think that's pretty clear, not the route that I think moderates would espouse. Um, but I think that uh, in, in this regard, um, um, I'm, um, I, I'm prepared to say that um, the main reason for espousing moderation today is uh, history. You look at uh, the 20th century, you look at the, the havoc uh, uh, wrought by uh, you know, two, two, two totalitarianisms and, and two uh, wars and so forth, and you realize that every uh, politician without moderation is like a ravenous beast of prey. Uh, that's uh, John Adams' definition of moderation. You need, you see what happened, and you draw the conclusion. So you don't need, you don't need necessarily the truth for that. You need the rules of prudence, and the historical experience to, to, to look at uh, uh, why we need uh, a virtue of moderation we, uh, today. And in this regard, the, um, uh, um, the guy from Princeton uh, who became an advocate of Putin. What's his name? You mentioned. Yeah, Stephen Cohen. Stephen Cohen, yeah. So he is right to, to, to re resort to history, but, but he is wrong to, to understand the history in the way in which he yeah. writes it. So history tells us that moderation is a safe way. The question is, how, how can we convince others that that's the case? But there are some things that we now know that, that uh, you know, uh, we, we cannot... Uh, a, a centralized uh, a command economy doesn't work. We know that. Uh, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So there are certain things that are beyond 
let's say, doubt. But you know, the form of market economy that some countries may want to espouse, that's, that's OK to, to experiment. So I think in, th in this regard, I was expecting you to say more uh, about Havel's reactions to, mm -hmm. to uh, Václav Klaus' uh, e pro-market economies in, in Poland, because I think Havel was a little bit more of a, of a romantic in this mm -hmm. regard, and, and, and uh, Michnik perhaps less so than, than, uh, than Havel. But I think it's history that tells us that we should look at uh, what happened and draw the lessons that we, we, we learned. We know that uh, very well. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.